We're going to take a break from Psalm 51 for at least today as we ponder some different things that are certainly very relevant for us on this particular Lord's Day. There's an old Jewish curse that says, may you be born in interesting times. That word interesting usually for us equates to difficult times, troubled times, painful times. And since March of this year, we've all been living in certainly interesting times. We've passed through, and in many respects, we're still in some unprecedented periods marked by an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. What does it mean for all of this to be unprecedented? Well, and what is unprecedented about it? Not the epidemic disease. History is replete with those. Not abuse of police power. That's always been with us. Not racism. Racism is a universal phenomena wherever races live in proximity with one another. What has been unprecedented is, for one thing, the governmental response to the epidemic coming our way, the shutting down of society and travel and commerce for such a lengthy period of time. Maybe, too, the response to police misconduct is unprecedented, and we're still not sure where it's all going. And without precedence and without tradition we, to, to lean on, we find ourselves feeling sometimes adrift, unsure how to think, unsure how to speak. We certainly are uncomfortable, uncomfortable, oh yeah, and on top of that we're grieved, both of which can lead to good things when you put them in the hands of the Lord and let Him use them for His purposes. So let's seek to do that together today. To increase your discomfort, go ahead and put your mask on for the rest of this. No, no, you don't have to do that, but do put on a heart of humility, a heart of prayer as we seek to hear from God what He would say to each of us. The term cognitive dissonance, been thinking a lot about lately, cognitive dissonance, it's that state of having inconsistent thoughts and beliefs and attitudes and with respect to the virus issues. We, we don't want people to get sick, no, no. We don't want to spread the disease, but we also don't want the economy to fall apart. We don't want to deprive people of simple human comforts of touch and presence. And we also don't want to hand over yet more power to government. The risk-reward calculus is unclear for us. Was the response to the virus worse than the disease itself? We see things differently as well, different than our neighbors might see them, or our children, or the authorities, maybe even our church's elders. On top of the fear and the loss, we have discord. And, and then there's the horrible death of George Floyd, followed, following closely behind the death of Ahmed Aubrey and Breonna Taylor, and again, cognitive dissonance because we hate the history of Americans mistreating our black citizens. And yet, we also want to be supportive of our police. We appreciate them and what they do for us. We also want to celebrate real advances that have occurred for minorities in our country in the last 50 years or so. And yet, these things continue to go on with the understandable dismay among people of color, indeed among all of us. What says our Lord? Oh my, folks, our message as believers in Jesus, our message is made for times like this. We face a virus that we cannot see, that we little understand, but it is deadly to 
a portion of our population, we feel our weakness, we feel our ignorance, and wow, we should. But we also must cling to the Savior in the hope of His presence, His presence, I should say, and in confidence in His promise. Well, what is our response as Christians to the virus? Partly it is this, prepare for your death. That is coming, whether the virus hastens it or not, and we don't know when. It is sadly ironic that in the midst of all the fears of viral contamination, not one of our North Park members, to my awareness, has even been diagnosed with the disease, but one of us has died as a result of an errant driver leaving his lane and smashing into his vehicle. Yet we all get in our cars tomorrow to go wherever we're going. There's a risk and reward calculus that's a part of every single day, isn't there? God's Word says the world is fallen. We are no longer in the garden and nowhere on this planet are we completely safe. There's no such thing as absolute safe. Safer, less safe, yes, but not just safe. Sin is real. Death is real. So I urge you to prepare for life's end by trusting in Jesus, the one who conquered sin, conquered death. If you avoid the virus or maybe you get it and recover from it, you may get a few more years. Medical science, Dr. Fauci, social distancing, it, it will, none of those things will save your life. They might prolong it for a few years, but only Jesus saves in any ultimate sense, and thank God that He does. Well, then there are now the ongoing racial tensions, suspicions, discord, and again, the Christian message speaks directly to these things. We are taught by God several critical ideas. First is that every person, every person is made in God's image and of great value with no hierarchy of values, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in His sight. But then again, the Bible tells us that everyone is fallen, everyone is guilty and covered with sin, all races and equally so. As a result, we can expect that there will be sin, that humans will act in pride, will act in selfishness, that those in whom we invest power will abuse that power, not all the time, but some of the time. When it happens, with the terrible results it sometimes yields, we grieve, we mourn, we seek for justice, we seek for repair, but we aren't surprised by it. Christians have insight into human depravity that others may not share, but even better, we have insight into the, rem into the remedies. If you're not familiar with the Babylon Bee, I encourage you to check it out. It is a Christian satire website, and on June 1, it posted an article that said this, the nation wished this week that God would send someone who could unify people across all races, classes, genders, tribes, and tongues. People from all across the country thought it would be great if there were some sort of perfect God-man who could bear all personal sin and racial enmity in himself in a kind of sacrificial act that would culminate in ending racism forever. Their point God has actually already done that in the gospel, in the person and work of Jesus. The needs of our moment point us precisely to Christ, to His work, to His gospel. 
referring to the divisions between Jew and Gentile, between man and God. Paul writes this in the second chapter of Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father." Elsewhere in the book of Galatians, Paul writes that we are all one in Christ Jesus, whether we are slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. And then John paints the amazing portrait of the glory to come in the book of Revelation, where it tells us that we will get together to sing the praises of the Lamb with whom? With whom? With the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, with all the races who share the image of God, who share in our sinful guilt and corruption. But with all these believers of all races, we share as well in the family of God and the riches of the cross and the glory that is promised to come. So, as I said, we who know the Lord have some rich resources to draw on to help our understanding. Therefore, what do we do in this particular cultural moment? Let me give you several quick suggestions, and then I'll get to our main thrust in a few moments. First, we listen, we read, we pay attention to try to understand. We listen to those who have been directly impacted. We listen to those who have had more experience than us, to those who have had different experiences than us. We give attention to the facts of certain cases, what actually happened in Minneapolis, in Brunswick, in Louisville, in Ferguson, and so on. Who were the victims? Who were the perpetrators? What was the real context? The information age in which we live means also a lot of disinformation that gets put out there along with it. It takes some effort just to decipher truth from error. So check multiple sources. Don't assume that whatever you heard on the internet or heard on the radio or from a friend is accurate. Abe Lincoln once said that not everything you read on the internet is accurate. Some knowledge of history is important too as we are constantly pointed back to things in our past as a nation, to slavery, to the Civil War, to former eras, to Christian heroes. And we have some like Wilbur, William Wilberforce. And then there's some Christian leaders who were disappointments to us. They missed the mark on this matter of race. There's a past that has brought us to where we are, and we do well to become more familiar with it. Secondly, I encourage you not to overreact due to emotion or out of emotion. Don't underreact either, but too often a reaction leads to bigger problems than the initial problem. Seventeen dead in the protests or the rioting that emerged out of the protest, including, of course, several persons of color. History is replete with examples of solutions to problems that led to bigger problems. Change. Change is only good if it's in a positive direction. 
The talk about dismantling the police department in certain municipalities, it's hard to believe that somehow that's going to be better for anyone, but we more often than not overreact in stressful moments and we make things worse. I know I do it. I can think back over my life to many poor reactions of mine that I came to regret. So let's be alert to this danger. Third suggestion is that we maintain humility. Part of the challenge for me in a message like this is that I'm trying to connect timeless biblical doctrine with the, an immediate temporal context. And you know, I might read the Bible correctly and misread the culture. I am who I am. I, I'm a white, conservative, middle-class, Christian baby boomer. My perspective is shaped by all of that. My emotions are as well. And when I hear others speak about what is going on, I realize, you know, they filter the news and their experiences in a different way than I might. It is possible that another person is wrong. It is possible that I am wrong. It's possible we could both be wrong or we're both possibly right in different ways. We do not have to pretend that 2 plus 2 equals 5 in order to get along, but we do need to recognize the possibility that I could be wrong. Maybe you'd say that together with me there in your home. I may be wrong. If that seems too mushy for you, then just say to yourself, I may be missing something, okay? Yet another reason for us to be good listeners. Part of the dynamic for many of us in this last month is that we see the George Floyd video and we see one horrible incident, angering, tragic for certain. But I understand that such a video gets connected in the minds and the hearts of people of color with all of their personal experiences of abuse and all the stories from their family members and all the movies they've seen portraying white persons hurting black persons and the emotional trauma for them goes much deeper, maybe even to a place that would strike you as unreasonable, but humility calls us to remember that we are looking at the world from only one angle and we may be missing something. We may even be wrong. Lord, give us humility. Fourth suggestion, remember that we put ultimate hope in a future kingdom. Qualified hope, limited hope in this world. Ultimate hope in a future kingdom, qualified hope in this world. Revelation 11, 15 says, The seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We all want to sing hallelujah. And in that kingdom, not only will black and white and Jew and Gentile and hawk and dove and stealer and raven dwell together in peace, so will wolves and lambs. Until then, we don't expect perfection while we do pursue it. What is Coach Tomlin doing with the Steelers? He is pursuing perfection with them, knowing that you won't get it all. Being mature means you won't get too discouraged by the failure, but you'll learn, you'll grow You'll cling to Jesus. You'll keep moving in the right direction. For those of us who have been around a few decades, one of the things we want to say to those who are younger is it, it may really look bad out there, but there have been significant improvements. It's way better than it was 50, 40, even 30 years ago. Our own Tim Holt uh, shared with me this week about living through the riots in Detroit in the early 40s. 
Many of us lived through the turbulent 60s. I can name the first black player ever to play for the University of Florida football team, Willie Jackson, 1969. Before that, no one was allowed on that team if they were men of color. Think of this. We now have black presidents and judges and surgeons and pilots and I could go on and on with such a list of things. In the midst of our struggle and our pursuit of a more just society, let's not lose what we have gained while we still point out what is missing and press toward a more perfect union, which we hopefully will see in our lifetimes, even while the ultimate we will only enjoy in the eternal realm. Fifth, fifth, uh, fifth and final suggestion, support good government. That's what we want to do. The Bible affirms the value and the rule and the role of government. We must have mayors and city councils and police because, hey, we are all sinners. We, we must have civil authorities. Scripture directs us to submit to those in authority. It grants them the power of the sword. But what is the problem with that? The government is run by fallen sinners, and the power entrusted to them often makes the situation worse. The founders of our nation sought to develop a government that reduces the power invested in any single individual. What they came up with is a good system, but it can't completely make up for human fallenness. Presidents, pastors, police can and do abuse power. And as our founders did, finding ways to hold them accountable, to check that power, that's critical, but it can never completely fix the problem. We've seen governors in recent months unilaterally take steps that have cost their citizens massively. I've not seen anything like it in my lifetime, and it's a little disconcerting. Human government is necessary due to human sin, but like, like chemotherapy, there are side effects of government that sometimes make you wonder if we would just better be better without it. When due to human pride or human folly, those leaders in whom we've invested power take us down the paths to destruction. So we don't overreact, but we do pray for our leaders. We seek to elect better ones. We generally obey the ones in place, and we rejoice in the promises of a perfect king whose kingdom is growing and will be forever. Praise God. All right, well, we now get to our main scripture for today and the main point of today. And I take us to the second chapter of the book of James, where we read this. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus, or Lord Jesus Christ, with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors.
racism. The term itself is not used in the scripture. The concept is addressed, however, in a number of ways. We read in the Old Testament about good treatment due to the stranger and the sojourner. There's a lot, of course, in the Gospels and in the uh, epistles of the New Testament about the Jewish-Gentile controversy and tension. We see Jesus breaking down the same barriers in his own life with his example, with the Good Samaritan story that he tells. But racism doesn't tend to show up explicitly in the Ten Commandments or in the list of the deeds of the flesh. And, and, you know, for many people in history, racism was not or is not a particular problem because they live in a context where there is only one race. But among all of us, there is this matter of partiality, of differences in how we treat people. The differences, they could be racial, they could be ethnic, economic, regional, but they all lead to the same thing, the failure to love certain neighbors as We love ourselves. In our passage, James imagines Christians treating someone as less than because of their economic status. He condemns the sin of partiality. Verse 9 again, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why? Because you are not honoring the image of God in that disfavored person. And it's worth us asking, why would we do such a thing as this? What motivates this kind of behavior? Is it not our pride, our selfishness? Racial bigotry is rooted in pride and selfishness. In James 2, it's a class bias. We prefer those with money. Now, why? Well, that's simple enough. Those who have money can do things for us that those who lack it cannot do. Money is power, and we want to cozy up to power in order to advance our own interest. None of us is immune to this, and we should be alert to the temptation to favor some over others because of what they can or cannot do for us. Jesus taught us to do good to those who cannot pay us back. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Think about that. When you walk into a room, Who do you approach? Who do you sit by? Who do you talk to? Naturally, in my flesh, in my fallenness, I make that choice based on one of two things. First is, who here can advance my purposes, my agenda? Often, it's the rich or the powerful. That's one reason we show partiality in how we treat people. The other reason we are partial is to promote our own comfort. The two great goals of most human beings, Francis Schaeffer shared this, and I think he's probably right on. The two great goals of most humans is personal peace and affluence. Personal peace and affluence. We gravitate toward those who can give us stuff, and we gravitate toward those who can make us feel comfortable. When you come to church, there are friends you want to speak to, you want to hang with, you feel comfortable with. That's why pastors have to often admonish their church members to look for and reach out to the people that may be new. Doing that, it's not natural for most of us. So when it comes to feeling comfortable, do you tend to feel that way around people who are like you or people who are different from you? That's easy. Around those from different cultures, people with different backgrounds, different educational levels, different income levels, 
we, we feel awkward, we feel unsure of ourselves, we don't know what is expected of us, we don't know how our behavior is being perceived. Relationships among folks like us with similar worldviews, similar experiences, similar customs. Well, we're at ease in those situations. Therefore, we're not, not only are we are partial to those who have power, but we're partial to those who are like us. One of the claims we sometimes hear is that all white people are racist. And that may depend on what is meant by the term racist, but most of us don't feel that. Few of us wish ill of those of different races. Few of us think less of those of different races. But the reality is that our simple lust for comfort makes us prefer those who are most like us. And so that affects us in hiring, it affects us in socializing, and in a number of ways. Now, race is just one factor among many, not the only one or the main one. Language is another big one. Religion, obviously, another barrier sometimes. Culture, culture. In our Florida church, there were a significant number of, uh, of people who were black, but they were Caribbean. Their skin was very dark, but they felt more comfortable culturally around the white Presbyterians than they did around the black Baptist church down the street. But the thing about skin color is that it is the first thing you see, or one of the first things you'll notice, and therefore it can inordinately impact our feelings and our judgments. Back to James chapter 2, verse 1. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That means that we are with intentionality to oppose our tendencies to seek affluence, to seek comfort. We want our interactions with others to be led by the Spirit of God and therefore to be motivated by His love. When we walk into a room or we take a new job or we go to a new community or a new church, we, we want to ask the Lord to lead us to those that we can serve, those who, who may not have that much, those who may be less appealing. We need to recognize our, our natural tendency to go the other way with that, to seek out the powerful, to seek out the similar. Instead, we want a purpose to listen to the Spirit, not the flesh. And we shelve our longing for comfort. In so doing, we may risk looking foolish, feeling foolish. We endure the awkward. We step into the uncomfortable. But we do all of that so that we might rightly represent our Jesus. What does that mean practically for you? Well, that's, that's a tough one. And it depends. It depends on who you are, where you live where you work, with whom you go to work, and with whom you go to school. Uh, many black friends right now are feeling pretty awkward, but at some point, stepping toward a relationship that is maybe not natural for you or comfortable would likely be a great idea. So I encourage you to talk about these things with your care group, maybe in your own family. There are big picture issues that are being discussed in Harrisburg and in Washington, D.C., but the darkness is often driven away by what President Bush used to call a thousand points of light. Wouldn't you love it if the next time an African-American hears that white people are racist, that person would think, well, not my friend, my Christian friend, Gail. Not, not my neighbor, Jim. He sees me. He cares about me. So whether it's virus concerns or racial tensions, most of us, right now are so wishing that things could go back to normal, right? 
Oh, Lord, what we would give for a normal day when the bad news in summer is about the Pirates losing another game. But here we are, wearing uncomfortable masks, living in uncomfortable disagreements, experiencing some uncomfortable relationships, and facing an unsettled future. But my friends, let's not leave that discomfort before we have learned and grown and sought the Lord. I've asked our brother Ben Burkholder to close us in prayer after he describes an upcoming opportunity related to our meditations today. If you want to continue the conversation, especially about race and justice and what that looks like in our current day and age, I encourage you to join us on Friday and Saturday evening this week for a film and movie discussion. On Friday, June 19th, we're going to watch the video from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. The video is Just Mercy. It's produced by Brian Stevenson. He's a Christian lawyer who's been working in the criminal justice system, and he defends clients that have often been put on death row for reasons that have less than sub substantial evidence. Then on Saturday, we're going to gather together, and so I know some of you have already watched the video. And from Saturday night, from 7 to 8.30, we're going to have a discussion about this. What do we do with this as Christians? How does our faith help us think about pursuing justice in our civic sphere? I hope you can join us for that. I'm going to turn now and pray for us and for our country in these difficult times. Join me now in prayer. Gracious Father, we need your merciful long-suffering this day. Our hearts grieve over the pain of seeing injustice in our land, and we ask that your kingdom and its reign of justice would come. We pray for each person who has perpetrated injustice, that you would grant them hearts of repentance. For those who have suffered the loss of life and loss of property, we pray that you would comfort them and supply what has been lost and help those who have lost their loved ones grieve, but grieve as ones with, with hope in you. We ask that you would grant us wisdom as to how we can personally apply your healing balm to the long history of racial tension in our country. We believe that you alone can bring together people from every kingdom, tribe, and nation. And we long to see that unity realized now as it will be in heaven. Give us courage to confront prejudice and racism on the one side and sympathy and empathy to hear and understand on the other. May we embody the spirit of Christ who would never snuff out a smoldering wick, but who would also boldly confront the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Give us a spirit of discernment now so that we might know in the midst of all the talking points which ones embody the justice and love of your kingdom and which ones do not. So come, Lord Jesus, and heal our land. Amen.